Hi, I'm Jennifer Zollett. And I'm Larkin Bell. Welcome to our podcast, A Female Lens. Another week, another whiffin. Here, Here we, we are. Yes. This week we are discussing basically the the debacle on the Academy's end of the best foreign language film versus this new best international feature film prize. Right. Um, there's been basically just a change in the title of the award, um, but basically the rules have stayed the same. Yeah. The eligibility is at least 50% of the dialogue must be in a language other than English. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's basically what's happening. Right. Yeah, so they just changed the name. They said they changed it. Uh, quote from the Academy, we have noted that the reference to foreign is outdated within the global filmmaking community. Um, we believe that international feature film better represents this category and promotes a positive and inclusive view of filmmaking and the art of film as a universal experience. Hmm. What an irony uh, of a statement, you know? Yes, because they essentially opened up a huge can of worms, right? Mm -hmm. They sort of uncovered the fact that this award is kind of uh, confusing, problematic, muddy, uh, regardless of what the name yeah. is, right? And generally kind of unfair mm-hmm. as an award, right? So anyways, this became an issue recently mm-hmm. because uh, two films were just disqualified. Each country is allowed to submit one film yeah. to the Academy. Which is also wild in itself. Yeah. I was thinking about that. I was like, wow, that feels... So limiting. Right. And yeah. it's like apparently the country's responsibility. So it's not even the filmmaker. It's yes. the country. Because I think one time um, Bong Joon-ho's film was not submitted because the country no, you're did so not right. submit it. Korea, South Korea yeah, didn't. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that seems also strange because like who can rely on a country to submit a film to? Yeah, I'm like, well, what's a, the bureaucracy award? there? Like, you know? What? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so basically... Um, Genevieve Naji uh, directed a film called Lionheart, um, and she is a Nigerian director. It was shot in Nigeria, Nigerian story. Mm-hmm. However, the film is in English because the official language of Nigeria is English. Right. Um, because it was a colonized place, nation. Yeah. I don't know. England the, colonized. Yeah, it. there we yeah. go. So that's why English is the official language uh-huh. there. Um, so, and a lot of people speak English there because there's mm-hmm. so many different languages. It's this one, you know, they're all colonized. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so the film is in English. Right. Um, and however, it became ineligible for the best international film category because of this um, mm-hmm. language, language situation. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there was a huge backlash about it. Um, Ava DuVernay, Lu Wang, many people kind of took to, you know, took mm-hmm. to the streets of social media <laughs> and made their thoughts known. Um, Film yeah. Twitter was ablaze. Yeah, it was. Wait, Elise, you have the, the tweet from Ava, correct? Yes. To This is from Ava DuVernay. To the Academy, you disqualified Nigeria's first ever submission for best international feature because it's in English, but English is the official language of Nigeria. Are you barring this country from ever competing for an Oscar in its official language? 
Yeah, I feel like that's really, it's like, what are you setting the stage for here? Mm-hmm. Um, the Academy has taken a pretty hard stance on this and they're like not backing down. Um, I just feel like that's not a great look. Mm-hmm. Also, it's like, okay, so what were you doing to, you know, what was the reason behind the, the award title change in the first place? Right. And then here we are trying to, I, I just don't understand how this yeah. is all going down. They're totally trying to defend it. And then also on Monday, um, it was reported that another film by another oh, right. female filmmaker was disqualified as well. This film is called Joy. It's by an Austrian-Iranian director, Subade Moritzai. And it was Austria's uh, submitted film for the upcoming Academy Awards. And it centers around Nigerian sex workers in Vienna. It premiered at the Venice Film Festival um, and was also acquired by Netflix. So it was Lionheart. Mm -hmm. Anyways, it was disqualified because two-thirds of the movie was in English. Um, Cool, cool, cool. (laughs) So, again, like, what what is happening? Why... um, yeah, I, why bother with this award if you're not actually honoring people who are making international films? And it's already so difficult to make international films. It's just hard to make a film in general. Films, yeah. yeah, I mean, generally. But like, <laughs> yeah, I found it interesting. There's an Atlantic article about this that we can post in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, but they mentioned that uh, historically, the now, now renamed but formerly best foreign language film winners... Um, has gone to a European country 83% of the time. Right. <laughs> so yeah. it's like the, it's such a narrow pool of like countries slash types of film that are honored, uh, that are kind of considered mm-hmm. slash eligible, right? It's like right. non-English speaking European films. Exactly. Like, well, white, okay. white creators, white, essentially. Yes, exactly. That's, exactly. Yeah. Which is like, Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not only white creators, but also um, by filmmakers that, you know, are of a mindset that we can relate to or understand. Mm-hmm. Like, some, you know, it's like I feel like some of these um, international films, they're questioning or looking at things that we might not be looking at in America or telling other stories about otherness, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is also interesting that, yeah, if they're just honoring... European films for the most part well that's not very far from our own experience in a lot of ways mm-hmm. completely just disappointing yeah and I think it's also calling to light what what does make it an international film like what is the criteria for that what do we do with that and like mm-hmm. how do we yeah how do we encourage that other those other perspectives right and I mean I think that's also tied to kind of the importance of the Oscars. I mean, it's technically a pseudo event, right? It's like not a real thing. I mean, it is a real thing, but it's an award ceremony. It's something we kind of make up to be a huge event, right? But it means so much in the film industry mm-hmm. and gives like such visibility to to filmmakers and I mean, money and yeah. t- so much is tied to them that even though it like is just kind of, you know, a little silly award show, it means so much that we have to really put the thought behind these things mm-hmm. because it does have such a ram like ramifications for so much else basically right. mm-hmm. there's a lot of power behind it and yeah. if you win an oscar if you're a director or somebody you, that's uh giving you the opportunity to make another film mm-hmm. you know it like gives you that validation that credibility and therefore the you know investment from other people which is huge yeah calls and calls into line also just the power dynamics involved yeah. in that and 
I know in the Atlantic article, they did mention that last year the Academy welcomed into its ranks a record 928 new voters. Mm-hmm. I think this is in the wake of the hashtag Oscars So White campaign and and just trying to reflect uh, a more diverse pool of creators, hopefully. Um, and I think that was part of the reason for this you know, quote unquote change in title, mm-hmm. but it's like, okay, are these actions actually concrete? And like, right. are they actually inspiring change or is it just in name only? And yeah. I think that's I think it's <laughs> not only a question for the Academy, I think also just a question for the culture at large, you know, yeah. like what are we doing? Right. Lulu, I think Lulu Wong's tweet uh, oh, in yeah. response yeah. to Ava DuVernay's tweet was really interesting. She gets a little like philosophical rabbit holey, but oh, I love it. the point is good. Um, she says, this calls attention to the delineation of quote-unquote foreign film versus quote-unquote foreign language film, which makes more sense. Can a foreign film be in our language, i.e. English? Can a domestic, i.e. American, film be in a foreign language? Hmm. What does it mean to be foreign and to be American? again gets 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 a little uh, existential there but yeah really good questions that's fascinating and it's also fascinating than like the foreign films that do kind of push through you know like Mm -hmm. i feel like last year alfonso Cuaron's roma Mm -hmm. um and this year with bong joon ho's um parasite it's interesting the the foreign films that do kind of get into the mainstream and it's also interesting to ask like okay why those films like how did how did that happen Again, how are all the power dynamics at work? I right. do not have the answers, but it's just interesting to, to think about, I guess, yeah. in, in light of all this. Well, and also, going back to Lulu Wang's film, The Farewell, mm-hmm. uh, most or a, a lot of the film is in Mandarin. Mm-hmm. So it is sort of along the lines of that question of like, okay, well, what if, you know, the protagonist is American, um, but the rest of the movie is in Mandarin? Like, okay, what category does that fall? If we're going to, you know, categorize by the language language that we're speaking in films, mm-hmm. um, does not follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The logic here. Well, lots to think about with this. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, it was really examining the power dynamics and, and kind of traditional traditional like what has been accepted before mm-hmm. and it's kind of like okay well that's been accepted before just because it's been done before right now we're here what can we do with that well we all saw what happened with the popular film category <laughs> yeah. last year so Yikes. who knows what will happen with this like, as time goes on the academy what are we doing <laughs> i don't know but um they are reacting is what they're doing uh-huh. <laughs> very true very true <laughs> Speaking of reacting, would love to hear um, from you listeners what your thoughts are on this whole situation and and thoughts on, on the awards season as we get closer to, to all these awards going down. So let yeah. us know. You can tweet at us, hit us up on our Instagram, or email us at afemalens at gmail.com. Sherry Chung is a composer for film and TV and currently composes the scores for Riverdale and Blindspot. Her most recent show, The Red Line, was produced by Greg Berlanti and Ava DuVernay. Her latest Warner Brothers film, Nancy Drew and the Hidden Staircase, was released March 2019 in theaters nationwide. Enjoy our conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sherry. Thank you for having me, guys. I'm very excited. Yeah, we are too. So, how did you become interested in composing? Were you always interested in music growing up? And was there a particular film or film score that initially influenced your passion for composing? 
Yes. So I grew up as a classically trained pianist. So I think I think if you're somebody who studies classical music, you kind of are aware of composers because you're always like, oh, you have to study your Bach and your Clementi and you know your Beethoven. And so you're always aware that there that there is such a job or so or is such an occupation as composing music. So I think that was at least made me aware that that was possible. Um, so I was always sort of like in music and I would write, I could sit at the piano and write songs and sing none of nothing made sense or nothing really probably even sounded good. But, um, so that was kind of always in me, but songwriting, I was probably the first love. And then, um, I did have a very influential film, a little film called Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. <laughs> With Kevin Costner. <laughs> Hello. Um, and the, the score is by Michael Kamen, and it, like, blew me away. I was like, what is this? Was it amazing? And it really moved me, and it was like, kind of the first time that I was, like, really connected with what I was hearing and what I was seeing on screen and, therefore, what I was feeling. And so I was like, I want to do that. And I got... Um, I got the soundtrack on compact disc. That was my very, very first compact disc was a soundtrack. Um, and I like, I just played that thing over and over and just kind of memorized it and soaked it in. And again, that, you know, that score was like really orchestral based and I wasn't doing that yet. I didn't, I didn't understand how to write for an orchestra or do anything like that. Cause I was about I don't know, 12 or 13 or something when that film came out. So, or when, at least when I saw it, I actually don't know if it, if I saw it when it came out, but anyway, so that really just influenced me and kind of informed like the rest of my trajectory for, to get here. I was like, I really want to do that and like tell stories in that way. Speaking of that trajectory, you studied music composition and theory at Jacksonville University and then went on to attend USC's Scoring for Motion Picture and Television graduate program. What was that training like and how did you make the leap from school to the film industry? I, so I think, I mean, again, once I realized, again, I was one of those people where it's like, oh, I know exactly what I want to do. So I I, I feel really fortunate for that because I know there's some people that have to, you know, kind of try a number of different things before they really know. So anyway, because of that, I I wanted to go to Jacksonville University because at the time it had a really great composition program. I believe it still does, but it had, it had a really great composition program and there was a professor there I really wanted to study with and, and it was a smaller college and I just thought I would get a lot of one-on-one and, um, it, it incidentally wasn't my first choice of college, um, but I ended up making that decision. I think it was, I think it was the right one because I'm here. Um, so yeah, I think when you're doing your undergrad, you're like, you're just in it. You're still a student, like, you know, going from high school into undergrad, you still don't know anything about the real quote unquote world. Um, and then it took me a while to get out to Los Angeles to do, um, the graduate program. It was, it took me like a good seven years to kind of be mentally prepared for that. Cause I just, I just wasn't, I, I think I had some, I had some growing up to do. I had some, um, just other things I wanted to not pursue, I guess, but I, I just, I knew that I wasn't ready. So I ended up teaching, um, piano privately for a number of years and kind of had my own business going in, in that way. Um, still writing music, but again, it was mostly songwriting stuff. And then when I learned about the graduate program out here at, at USC, I was like, oh my goodness, this is like the place. This is, you know, one, this is like the one, the thing that's going to make and change everything for me. I was convinced of it. Um, and so, 
but I, I don't know. I went on their website and I was listening to all the current students and past students because they do keep some, you know, current and then past years of, up there. And I listened to some of their music and I was like, oh, oh, I'm like not there yet. Like I can't. I, I just didn't have anything like what they had posted that would be like suitable for the application process. And I kind of felt like I really need to go back to school, I guess, a little bit to just to kind of reconnect with that side because I hadn't been writing to picture and I hadn't been writing this orchestral stuff at, at really at all um, even though I was doing a lot of music stuff so I went back to see some of my old professors at school in Jacksonville and I was like hey I'm just gonna like audit your classes and just kind of just sit in and do some work again you know and, and they're like great we'd love to have you back so then through that process I got an application process going and then um, sent it off to USC and just kind of told myself like, hey, I'll give myself a couple years to try and get into the program. And if it doesn't work, that's fine. I'll try a different way. But I guess the point of all that is like I knew that I needed to come out to Los Angeles because I guess that was in 0708. Oh, oh, yeah, I guess in around yeah, 0708 because I went I went there in 08 to 09 and I just and at the time it's like that was the only place that I knew of that was really doing filmmaking I mean now with all the technology you can live anywhere really and score films for anyone in any place in the world and and like make it happen but um so anyway so I I just I knew it was a place and then I just I applied I got in on the first try, which was amazing. <laughs> and I was like, what? And then, um, and came out. And I, I will say that while, when I came out to the program and, or, and I moved and it was like, I thought I really have no basis of comparison of how I either measure up to other composers who are at my level, who are just, you know, kind of starting out or like measure up if you kind of look at it in a, in a negative way, but like, you know, just how I, how I compared or how I was doing. Cause I was just, I felt like I was in my own little bubble and this was the first time that I was going to actually really talk to anyone else who wanted to do what I was doing. Cause where I was in Jacksonville, I'm sure there were plenty of people trying to pursue this, but that wasn't in my world. It wasn't in my circle. So it was a really interesting, um, I mean, it was an entirely like a total change of my life. <laughs> and so I, I had like 15 other like instant friends, you know, right, right, right when I got out because they were all in the program with me and we were all figuring it out together. And, um, to answer the question of how, of like what it was like, it was like, you know, I mean, that kind of training is, is really intense and any graduate program is very, very intense. And, you know, it's not the kind of program that you can do part-time. It's not that you can't work part-time. And, um, it was just, it was probably the most like, intensive growing process that I had done to that to that point you know and it was it was kind of relentless and unforgiving but it was also really important and, and hugely pivotal I think into giving me like the tools or even letting me know like hey these are the tools that you're gonna have to sharpen or get if you don't have them yet you know um and then making the transition into like the working world um you know, I, I think that I think it's kind of like how what everyone experiences when they first get out. <laughs> They're just like, "What do I do with my job? I want like it's pretty universal." Yeah, yeah I know. I'm like, I want my mom and like a fuzzy pillow right now because I just want to like cocoon up. But um, I was very fortunate. I did have a job 
directly leaving the program. Um, I started as an assistant to Walter Murphy, who then and still now does the music to Family Guy and American Dad. And at the time, he was starting another show called The Cleveland Show. And so he felt that he needed some help. And he called over to some friends that he knew in the in the program, like the director and the some professors and they just gave some names and he kind of tried a few people out and I ended up, you know, being, I think, you know, just the right fit for his, for his operation, which really worked out well. And I ended up staying on with him for about seven years and kind of moved, you know, doing assistant things, but also moved into being one of his orchestrators as well. So that was, um, I think that really helped my transition a little bit because it, while it was a part-time thing, it was also something that I could, you know, I could still do other things and kind of work on my own projects and student films and really cut my teeth into, into that way. So I would, I feel very fortunate. I didn't get thrown into the fire as it were, but I also wasn't left hanging. So I really had something to, to step into and work on. Yeah. Quick question about the student films and like during, during the school process, like how does it work for being a composer in school? Like, are you work like working on scoring student films or is it more like it's the classes are so intense that you're working just on the class? It's, it's both, right? So, so we, I mean, I think that's the great part about being at USC was because yes, the program was very intense, but I, but they definitely nurtured and, and like gave us opportunity to work with the film students. So we were it was it was certainly not required, but it was pretty much expected that like yeah go find a student filmmaker and do some films you know and and you know a lot of us took on more than we probably should have because we get really ambitious and like I can do this you know or whatever um, I was one of them <laughs> I was wrong I mean I should have just you know slowed it down but you know whatever sounds familiar I yeah. know right <laughs> you live and learn um, but yeah so their that their program is really great that way because they really they cultivate that relationship and they actually um, try to put us all together with the filmmakers, which I think is really important because in my understanding, very few filmmaking programs like talk about music. Well, that, yeah, I was just curious about that collaboration, like just from our conversations with, with other composers and such like that is such a huge part of composing is that collaboration. So if that's not part of the program I'm just curious about I that. mean when, when we think about it like as a film composer that's really your job like it's not just oh I'm writing music it's like I'm collaborating with the filmmakers to figure out what is the best approach and and like you know from from my point of view as the filmmaker like if this is my job like here's my opinion it's kind of like when a filmmaker hires a lighting person you know they it's, it's a collaboration but you also say oh lighting person you you've trained for this lighting person that's, that's their <laughs> official job like you've trained for this I really want to know what your opinion and what your experience shows or tells you about like oh this is how do you apply that to this project so but it is I think it is interesting because at least at the time a lot of the filmmakers were just like yeah we don't we don't get classes in in how to talk to other composers or how to even hire one or what to look for um so I thought that was I think that's really kind of shocking because I feel like that that's probably at least in my understanding and my experience that's probably the the one thing that really scares the heck out of filmmakers is, oh my gosh, they've, yeah, yeah, they can do the casting and they can deal with the actors and they can do the shoots and the editing. And now, now they're out of money, they're out of time. And now they're like, oh my gosh, I have to work and talk about music. I have to work with somebody that I, that is just coming on to the film and talk about music. Like, how is that supposed to happen? But, but we composers, we're used to that. So we know, <laughs> we know how to talk to you guys. <laughs> 
Can you tell us a little bit about the difference in your creative process between scoring um, for television shows and scoring for film? And additionally, how does your approach to scoring change for television shows that are different, like Blind Spot and Riverdale? Right, because they're so yeah, like, different they're so in different. tone. Is your process different? Yeah. Well, I have to say that just because I, I mean, I am working a lot in television, but obviously there's you know the film work too. I would say that. The, my, like my my approach is is the same. I, I mean, I feel like ultimately, you know, we st- I still need to come up with like the right like the right sound. But but you know, for instance, themes. You know, if it's going to be a very thematic show or thematic film. I mean, even if it's not even if it's not like superhero kind of the- thematic, where you actually hear like a bold stated melody. Um, a lot of times, there's other like thematic material where it may not be like a melodic note type of thing like an actual melody but it might be you know an idea or like a musical gesture or maybe even a musical sound I still feel like no matter what um, sometimes especially in in television because the shows can go on for a number of years but no matter what I feel like that thematic material has to be really solid and kind of undeniable and it has to really work in all the different emotional ways that it might appear in a TV show or in a film. So I feel like in terms of that, that's one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most important things as film composers is to really tap into like the sonic world, whether it be thematic or melodic or motivic, you know, all that has to be really solid. And that goes for film and TV, like no matter what. Um, so that being my approach, or at least and other people that I've, that I've worked with and, and talked to about it, it's like that being kind of what we do, that doesn't change. Um, I think one of the, I think the biggest difference is probably time constraints for television. It's, it's a lot tighter. It's a lot less movable and changeable because, um, there's air dates that are set <laughs> oftentimes in film. It's like, well, we, you know, we could release it here, but we want to see what's also coming out then. And we want to maybe wait a little bit. We want to time it in, in this way. But in, t- in television, it's pretty much, no, those are the air dates. Those are the set times. And, and, you know, it's, it's on that, it's, it's got an engine and it's, and it's moving. <laughs> it's like, it's on those tracks and there's no stopping it. So because of that, I think the schedule gets a little bit crazy. Um, and I think just episodic in general, um, you know, obviously with TV, you don't really know where the story is going. You have no idea, first of all, how long the show is going to run. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, it's, if it's an hour long, you know, it's 42 minutes of an episode. Um, but you don't really know, you know, is that going to, is that going to go on for a year for a season or is it going to go on for, in the case of some shows like eight to 10 or plus more years. So because of that, I feel like there's, I mean, that's kind of the exciting part of it. I think the approach Again, I don't think the approach changes. I think that even more so, the material has to be pretty solid. But I feel like there's a lot more room for development in in those kinds of situations. So I think that's like that's a really exciting part about episodic. And I would say that sort of my methods, you know, or you get just more of an opportunity to play with like, oh, how can, like in the case of Riverdale, you know, we had the 80s episode. And it's like, you know, the, the producers said to us, you know, to Blake Neely and I, who the co-composer um, on Riverdale, and they said, you know, just, just go as 80s as you want. Just like as 80s as you want. I'm like, okay, this is amazing. And it's like, how do you come up with like the Riverdale theme, which is written by Blake? How do you come up with that theme and put it like in an 80s context? And I'm like, dude, that's all you. Go for <laughs> it. Go to your, you know. 
anyway, and, and he did it, and it was really, really awesome. And I feel like we get you get sometimes less of those opportunities in film. Um, so again, I don't know if that's an approach difference, but that's certainly something that we are allowed to do, certainly on a show like Riverdale, which is just totally, they're just, I mean, they're irreverent in the most creative and like fulfilling ways it's like okay now we're going noir now we're doing like this dream sequence and now we're now we're just you know we're going back in time we're going whatever I mean hey maybe they'll go forward in time next year I don't know (laughs) we don't know yet but um yeah and then what was the other part of the question that you're the difference um between television shows like different shows oh right right yes okay so Riverdale being like Mm -hmm. and many of us know what it is and then Blind Spot obviously is a very different uh, different thing and so I think the answer in terms of approach and this and this can go for like a different film or a different like you know two films are really really different but any project that's really really different I think it's important to ask like what is the function of the score you know what what needs to happen with this music because sometimes like especially in a superhero show there's a lot of suspension of disbelief I mean these you know people can't fly but yet we have to make it really believable yeah and it's and it's like I mean, sometimes if you were to watch, you know, many shows and many films, like, without music, it could be a little silly because you're like, oh, this just looks a little awkward. But then, really, when you have the right support, you know, I mean, the acting could be amazing, but it's like when you have sometimes, when you have the other element of of music really, like, helping to support the emotion or helping to support the action, that can really help. So, in the case of Riverdale, you know, I feel like, you know, our approach and, and Blake, especially when he was really starting out the show, he, you know, really had that discussion with producers and, you know, we really don't need the, the music to support the action. It just, it, there wasn't that kind of thing. It needed to create, as Blake put it, you know, almost create like this warm blanket that just kind of wraps around you. And it's like, oh, it's Riverdale. <laughs> you know, I mean, yes, it was like a murder mystery in the first season, but it really just needed to like set the sonic world and help an audience just completely immerse into that world. Um, that's the great thing about Riverdale is that it's not of a certain time, it's not of a certain place or a certain decade or even a certain genre. It's kind of, I mean, now we've gone more horror, a little, you know, but I mean, it's still, it stretches everything and across everything. And so a, f- a show like that doesn't need, you know, quite as much statement um that said as the show has progressed in each season you know and then the second season we get you know the black hood and then you know we get serial killer and we get all these different kinds of things the music has definitely taken a turn and become more bold and become more supportive of like the horror and the oddity that is that show (laughs) but then when you switch to blind spot blind spot is a much more based in reality show um so and it's also a very information-heavy show. It's a procedural. There's there's a mystery, but it's not so much mystery as it is like a case to solve. It's an FBI case that has to be solved. There's a lot of you know there's there's a lot of bad guys. There's, there's cops. You know, I mean, there's a whole and in and, and this huge arc that runs the entire length of the series, not just the season, but the entire length of the series. And it's full of puzzles and full of layers. Jane's body is fully tattooed with multiple levels of bioluminescent tattoos <laughs> <laughs> totally believable and, like based in reality but like because of that the music really needed to needs to propel the story forward not because it's boring not because the acting isn't there or the writing isn't there like on the contrary the show probably doesn't even need as much music 
as as we put in there. But I think it does really help move you know, identify like, hey, this is a piece of information. Like every time they get a new clue and they're solving it inside the FBI, um, you know, room that they're in. And, you know, every time there's like a new piece of information, it's like really, you know, music helps to make make that turn because it's a very talking and an information heavy show. Um, anyway, so the point of all that is like the music has to do something else. The score has a different function. Um, it provides, you know, propulsion and information and, and just alerting the audience that this is something that they need to pay attention to. So it takes a much more forward approach. Speaking of Riverdale, when you have like those musical episodes that are based on the musical, like Harry or, the, yeah, or, or Heathers, Heathers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. how, yeah. What's the role of the composer in that situation? Yeah. Cause the music's already, it's already there. Of, yeah. yeah. It's already there. Um, we get a light week. We, <laughs> we, um, actually, I mean the, the, I know those, those episodes are so great. Um, because, because they're already established, a, a lot of our job is to, um, help in between this, you know, and like set up that there's a song happening or set up, um, maybe like a, just a transition into it from dialogue or sometimes a song coming out, like going into like a source piece, like, you know, when Veronica's in Le Bon Nuit and it's like, there's a source piece playing that you, that you, you usually can't hear it as much, but you feel it. And so, so sometimes it's nice to have, you know, or like a look at the very end of a song. And sometimes it's nice to have that transition. So I think that, yeah, I think score, I mean, our, our job, I think in that, in that sense is just to, to help, you know, Cohesive, to, exactly yeah. like deliver us there and deliver us back. <laughs> One other question on, on TV, like how does your job like work with the sound editor like you mentioned musical sounds and how does that like whose job is like I'm assuming that is your job but then how does that work like you said with like a look and there's a sound there yeah whose job is in it like do you work with this I'm just yeah yeah, no 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 no. we told you I mean so there's a spotting session before every episode and same thing within a film there's a just there's a spotting session and it's and spotting is literally the idea of let's talk about when music starts and when music ends and why the music is there and what we want to have accomplished and and so oftentimes in those meetings they'll say to us hey you know we're not really sure how to get out of this song I mean it just kind of ends but we have this other dialogue thing that happens you know Cheryl is talking or there's a look or we really need to get us into, you know, this next, this next thing. And so they'll talk to us about that and they'll say, you know, can you help us with that? And I'll be like, oh yeah, we can, we, we can do that. Um, there's a show that Blake and I just did. It's called The Red Line and it's, um, it's season finale is this Sunday. And, um, that was one of the things that they talked about with us too, is to, when you're talking about the sounds, they had this, um, I forget exactly what it was, but it was like this, um, they had sound, I think there was like a crowd, there was like a crowd happening and they had like the sounds of the crowd that they really wanted to have, have present, but they weren't really sure. Like, you know, they're like, Hey, we, we, we want to know what you guys are doing with the music because if what you're doing with the music maybe has the kind of propulsion and the kind of drive momentum that we're looking for, maybe we don't need the sounds of the rioting crowd, which is a really, really cool. Those are my favorite kinds of collaboration because oftentimes sound effects do win over the music sometimes, which, you know, it's, in my opinion, it's debatable whether that's as moving as a piece of music that, you know, a composer could write. It's like, I kind of have an idea for this and we really would like to broom out the sound effects so we could, you know, try something with the music. And, and a lot of times they're really open to that. The ones on the red line, you know, they were really open to that, the showrunners. And, um, it was also produced by Greg Berlanti, who does, 
also produces Riverdale and Blindspot. Also, Ava DuVernay produced The Red Line. And so, you know, there was a lot of collaboration on that on that side of things. Um, on the Nancy Drew film that I worked on, Nancy Drew and the, and the Hidden Staircase, um, that was one of the things they said. They're like, hey, we, you know, when Nancy sees, you know, the, the pink footsteps of like, you know, leading to the bookcase, we had, we have all these sound effects in there. And they said, Hey, well, we, when we heard what you did with the music, we feel like we don't really need as much of those sound effects in there or then, or, and then they sort of like change them. So it's like before I think the sound effects had a very like sheen sound, like a very cutting, you know, higher register, almost metallic sound. And then whatever I was doing with the music, they're like, Oh, well, let's, let's take that out and let's put something that's maybe in a different register to kind of give it a little bit more weight. So I, I just, I really like those kinds of collaborations, but they're absolutely conversations. And sometimes they're very like long, you know, and like, you know, the, and returning conversations too. Cause it's, I mean, it's amazing. Like every part, every frame, every like thing you hear in a film or a show is talked about and labored over and discussed so it's it's fascinating, I think. Oh yeah, I am fascinated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what's the what's the timeline um, for a television show? Like, what's your where do you, when do you start the process, and how long do you have to compose for an episode? So it depends. Like in the case of the Red Line, we actually finished the entire show. It was an eight episode limited series, and we finished the entire thing before it ever aired. So we did actually get a good amount of time to really, you know, marinate on the story and digest it and, and work on it and then deliver it. And it was, that was really great. Um, on, in the case of Riverdale and blind spot, we get far less time. <laughs> um, we get about seven days to re- to, to get the film or get the, get the picture to spot it to discuss what how we're, what we're doing and approaching it and and then to write it um but also during that time we have to deliver it and have a review process with the producers and showrunners they need time to give their notes we need time to do the notes um then we have time to deliver and in some cases we get to record as well and so we need time to record and mix and deliver so and that's for two shows so it's insane so seven oh days God. goes really really wow. quickly for one show but then you if you if you know which i'm like i said i'm fortunate to be able to have to be able to work on multiple shows and so it's wow. very little time it's hard to imagine um, yeah do you read the script before you see it we don't read the script. I mean, okay. I, I I like reading scripts if it's especially if it's a pilot because in in the case of a pilot, right. I haven't even they haven't even shot yet. So it's like I want I got you know I need something to go mm-hmm. on. But I I'm not the best script reader because I I well how about this I I know how to read <laughs> <laughs> I can read um, but it's more like I just my visual when I read something is completely different from what it's going to be and so I just don't like writing ideas to a script which I which I have done and and have and have needed to do for the sake of time before but you know it always looks different when you see it so no so we don't actually read the scripts um because pretty because again television just works so quickly that by the time yeah yeah Yeah. I mean like by the time by the time the script could get to us I mean they've already shot it it's like we already have a locked picture Mm -hmm. um but I think this is this is what's amazing about those particular shows too like and anyone any of the Greg Berlanti shows anyone any one of those it's like all the people that he works with, they are so good at what they do because they are, they, they know exactly 
like how to diagnose a problem if there is something. They know how to diagnose a success so they don't change it, you know, and they know how to just give a note and say, look, this is this is great. I think we need to do this nip, this tuck, and then away we go. So I feel I feel like all the teams that are, that are put together on on his shows, and those are, the, those are the ones I've mainly worked on, which is why I, I'm singing his praises. But because of that, it's like everyone is such a it's, it's a well-oiled machine. It's solid work. It's you know everyone is really good at their job, and and I feel like you know, and not, in not a bragging way, but I feel very proud to say that I feel like Blake and I are like we've honed in what we need to do, and that's that's the best way to get through it <laughs> and still be creative. Yeah. You've mentioned that there's so many different elements to composing, having the idea, playing instruments, conducting, arranging, all that recording. Do you have a favorite part in the process? Uh, you know what? When, if we get to record, if I think that's one of my favorite, favorite parts about like, again, like on the, on Nancy Drew film, it's like writing. It is really great. And working with the, with, you know, the directors or showrunners, whoever it is working with them is I, I do love the collaborative process. Um, but it's also like hard earned fulfillment and joy. It's like, it's like, this is really difficult work, but it's so fulfilling. <laughs> and then the one, but I think the one where it's like, it's, it's really fulfilling is like on, on the scoring stage you know, and it's, I mean, again, that's also hard work because oftentimes it's like, we have a lot of music to get through. (laughs) And sometimes, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's also a collaborative process with the musicians. I would say that that's one of my favorites. The, the, the noir episode for Riverdale, um, Blake and I were like, oh, we're definitely recording this. There's no way to do noir without some sort of trumpet or saxophone or bass or just something. So we ended up working with a trumpet player, and as well as woodwind players. And it was just, it was kind of amazing. And just, and just being able to collaborate and say, oh, can we, you know, can we do the Riverdale theme? We want to do, we want to kind of bend those notes a little and make them a little more like, wow, wow, you know, like a little more sexy, a little more, and you're like, oh yeah, should I do it like this or should I do it like that? And it's like, oh, try, try this mute or that mute. And it's like, it's, it's, I think it's just the most, because it really is a time where the music, you know, isn't me by myself in a room or coming from the computer but it's now like oh there's there's like another live being playing these little dots on a page and (laughs) I think that that's like it it makes the music come alive and I I I think that we do pretty well when when we're not recording too it's like the music is there It's, it's a it's very much alive but it is nice to to talk that over and have that dialogue with a with a musician and say, you know, hey, what do you think? Because they're they're really good at what they do. Like they're professionals and they know everything about their instrument. And it's like getting to talk with them and 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 they they can do things that I my computer can't do. Like my my computer cannot bend, you know, in cannot bend these notes and cannot like you know, just sort of do these wild crazy things that only an instrumentalist can do. So yeah, it's, it's just, very inspiring. Yeah. And also I just never thought about that where like there is that shared love and passion for music itself within totally. that collaboration. And like you mentioned with filmmakers, they may not have that experience or have that background yeah. in music. And so, yeah, what a thrill. Yeah. To- yeah. It's just another level of collaboration. You were talking about collaborating with all these people who are just so good at what they do. Right. And you bring right. another person on and it's just, everything's heightened again. It's, yeah. It, it, no, it's totally true. It's heightened. And it's like, oh, I didn't know. Like, I mean, as again, as like a director, it's like this person comes in and they're just like, well, I really wanted to do this thing because I really, I, I see the scene as being, you know, more of a commentary on humanity. And I'm like, what? I just thought they were sitting down having dinner. I mean, I didn't know that was, you know, and so it's, a, it's like, but I wouldn't have known that. I'm like, what a great 
piece of direction. And I just I remember we, we got a note recently. I forget. Gosh, I forget what it was. Oh, yeah, it was it was a note on, on the blind spot finale, which I don't think is aired yet. But like, I remember that it was a, it was a note that we got. And it was just something like, hey, you know, can we make this a little bit more emotional and, and epic? And I was kind of doing like, you know, driving and, 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 and this is detrimental and oh and what's gonna happen and it was it was it was a very aggressive it was it was good but he was he was like you know I you know this could really be the end of the entire team of the of this FBI team who's been working together that we all love after four years of you know of of this show but I'm like oh of course this needs to be far more epic so instead of these like arpeggios and driving types of things which did kind of stay it's like I pulled back a little on those and added like well we need like a bigger string line that's like an arcing and more of like a melody and something that's you know and then I put like a rising for any of your you know geeking fans out there music (laughs) here for those yeah yeah. (laughs) like like a rising line in the bass and it's just like oh my gosh there's something that's just for me that just moves me and that just says like oh this is guttural this is like I'm gonna you know I'm gonna I'm emotional and instead of just one emotion of danger and and I'm, I'm I'm I have fear and anxiety. It's also like, no, this is this is emotional in terms of, um, you know, tapping into like, like this could mean loss. You know, that's so I think like that's what's really exciting about. Um, I mean, and and like I said on Blind Spot, that was Martin Garrow, the show's creator, and it was just like, wow, what an amazing piece of direction that I would never know because. I didn't direct it. I didn't write it. I didn't create it. I don't, I don't tell the story in that way, but I, but we, we composers need, need the directors to talk to us in those ways so that we can tell our story this way. I didn't need him to say, yeah, can you put a rising line in the bass <laughs> and then, you know, modulate up a whole step to, you know, it's just like, please don't, like, please don't, but talk to me about emotion and what, when, what we need to feel. And that's where I feel like composers like yeah like everyone just bring bring your language to the table and and we all we all contribute and bring our and bring our a game you attended the sundance institute film music program as well as ascap scoring workshop can you tell us a little bit about these experiences they are both amazing and very different. Well, the Sundance was was different when I went through it. It's actually changed a bit now. So when I went through it, um, well, I should say now they actually do incorporate um, a live orchestra opportunity. So there's like, so you know, applicants or a, a, what do they call them? Fellows, fellows. Thank you. When the fellows go, they they actually have the opportunity to take the music that they've written and record it with an orchestra and hear it live and and have that whole experience, um, which the ASCAP scoring workshop also does to a huge extent. They give you a sixty, almost sixty five piece orchestra at one of the major stages in Los Angeles and you get the best players that you will ever have on any score you could ever write, and it's the most fulfilling and amazing experience and this is that that's the ASCAP workshop um like I said the Sundance one does also do that they do it up in um is it San Francisco or the uh, Skywalker Skywalker Skywalkers yes um so that's that's a really great opportunity and and Peter Golub who has run that program I mean I I don't know if he started it sorry Peter but I know I know he's running it now he was running it when I did it and he's been and he just does an amazing job and in conjunction with BMI but when I when I did the program the Sundance one, um, they hadn't moved it to Skywalker yet, and so there was, and there wasn't a live orchestra involved yet. And I, I really valued that actually because I had just 
been through the graduate program at USC, where we also got the opportunity to have that orchestra, but we paid for that. <laughs> and, uh, and it was really nice to say, you know, hey, part of the reality of what it means to be a film composer today, especially if you're not one of the top five or 10 composers that, that will get the kind of budgets where you have the orchestra, most of what composers are having to deal with today is, you know, there just isn't really the budget to record with an orchestra as large as we might write for. So I think it was, I think the Sundance program, even now, but especially then, was very relevant in, in sort of teaching us how, how would you do it otherwise. And it was mainly basically about exploring your sound and exploring just different approaches and teaming up with directors or documentary makers, you know, and other storytellers and just getting that very one-on-one, basically trying to take what should really happen in your career and moving it to like a really small condensed time where you get advisors, people who are currently working currently at the top of their game and coming in and sort of supervising the collaboration and saying, Oh, great. And now let's talk about this and talk about that. So I, and that still happens. It's just not now they have the addition of the live, which I think is really, really great. So for me, that was a the Sundance one because I did that one first was was really life changing because I I just I mean, frankly, the experience of just going out to like the middle of nowhere and just like the, the trees around. I mean, there was a river. It was like the natural water features of life, <laughs> and to me, it was like this is amazing. I and it's so it's such a refreshing thing to not be you know, in my small studio apartment at the time writing, you know, music or being under the gun and, and like as in school and having to write, you know, in your really hot apartment, <laughs> doesn't that air conditioning <laughs> in, the, in the dead of summer. Um, so for me, it was, it was really life changing. I also got a chance and I know we, we have more questions on that, but I got a chance to actually have a, a more one-on-one with Blake Neely, who was at the time had just had been one of the advisors at, in school um, which is where I met him. But then when he was an advisor that year uh, for his first year, well, uh, that the year that I was there. So that really gave, again, that's what's really great about Sundance in general is because you really get a one-on-one with every advisor who comes through. And you won't, you won't always connect you know, with each one of them in, in the way that I think Blake and I were able to connect. But it's it's like each 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 experience is kind of priceless. And then the same thing with the ASCAP one. It's like, it, that was a lot less you know with advisors, but it was a lot more like, communal and you have the chance to again walk through the entire process of scoring um that one's not about pairing you with a filmmaker but it's it it's 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 the other side it's like okay once you've gotten the film (laughs) once the music is written how do you how do you finish that how do you produce it and make it and represent the score that you've written to the best of your ability and frankly how do you learn how to do it in this town because it's it's very it's very unique in this town. Um, so both are very different and very like incredibly life changing. And just to plug both of them, they are all expenses paid. So people should apply. I think it's a really great way for composers to, you know, see, see, see how other people are doing it, see how it it needs to be done, like should be done. Um, it just kind of gives you a chance to like, just another, another bit of school to, you know, to go and try something new and, you know, quote unquote fail or make a mistake, you know, and, and, and figure it out and kind of learn from the top people who are graciously giving of their time to, you know, advise. Um, but yeah, invaluable experiences. You are working on so many interesting projects and obviously have such a passion for 
composing. Where do you go to like stay creatively excited or what do you seek out? I've been thinking about this question because I, because I kind of get this question a lot and I never really know like where does my inspiration come from, which you know, has also left me like, you know, in the corner, like in the fetal position crying sometimes. <laughs> I'm like, where do I get it? <laughs> but so this doesn't turn into a therapy session. Um, I, I think I'm starting to realize that, well, I mean, first of all, for each project, I, and it sounds like a, like a cliche answer. It sounds like the answer you're supposed to give, but I think it's honestly the case with me. And I would imagine for many other film composers, because we're writing to a story that the story itself has to be inspiring. So that's probably like a given. So it's kind of like, oh, I mean, if the story is, doesn't really sound that interesting, it's like, oh, well, we'll see. Oh, maybe, maybe the picture will inspire me or something, you know, maybe just seeing something will inspire me. Um, but just on a, like a global level, I've also realized since I seem to be working in like really long spurts, like August through May is like the TV season, you know, for, for me anyway. And so I seem to kind of work in these long spurts and then I kind of let off the gas and have, you know, a much, you know, much sparser schedule, you know, just like one project here and there. And I've noticed that I, I need to, I need to do it in two steps. I need to first like just retreat and go into like silence (laughs) Like literally, like no music. I don't want to, li- or no, I don't want to listen to anything in particular. Like radio is fine, but but not listening to anything, um, not really studying anything, not brushing up anything. Like just kind of like really retreating into something that's very far away from what I was doing before. Which isn't to say that I won't write for myself. It's just more like like no TV, like n- nothing writing to picture. Like that, like that's the, that's my biggest thing is I need to like not write to picture for a while. I need to not, because writing to picture is, and not in a negative way, but it's limiting. It's, it's, it's what it is. Cause you're writing within a certain set parameters, lots of things you can do within those parameters, but they are set. If, if that scene is one minute and 32 seconds long, your music cannot go over that. So it's very, you know, there are parameters. Um, and I feel like the best way for me to recuperate is to not do any of that kind of writing for a while so that it's like I can stretch. It's like, oh, I've been in that box for a little bit. I need to like stretch. Again, it's not a bad box. <laughs> um, but yeah, I need to stretch stretch it out and then um, and kind of re- like relax my brain, let the real estate clear up a little bit, <laughs> let everything fill up a little bit. Um, and then And then I think that actually, oddly enough, that actually in itself just feels creative because it's like, oh, now there's just other ideas brewing. But then I, to be honest, I really like to watch like just other movies and other shows and just see what's out there and let someone else do the work. Like someone else entertain me (laughs) instead of the other way around. When you're watching something like that, like, do you listen for the score? Not necessarily maybe in this recuperation mode, but like, do you, are you excited about other people's work or like, do you look for certain things and listen for that? Yeah. I mean, you know what? I, first and foremost, I think that I, I really am a true audience member. I like, I really just want to be entertained. I really just want to be told a story and taken to a place and like, like any other moviegoer or show watcher. Um, but I'm totally, aware of the music and I'm, and I'm paying attention to mainly because I, I just want to see like, well, what did, what did they do? What they choose? I mean, I'm some of these shows that I'm watching now, especially when they're just streaming, you know, like it's, I mean, not only am I watching them streaming, but they really are only streaming shows. I just noticed, is there a difference, especially with all the content? Is there a difference? I mean, how is it, how is the, how is the method changing? Like, how are the styles of scoring changing? 
And it's, it's interesting. And again, it changes with every show. Cause you, you just, a lot of shows don't use a lot of music at all, or it's very like subtle and understated. And, and, and I think that's great. Um, but you can't do that with a superhero show or a superhero film. So, I mean, it just, it kind of depends. I mean, whether that's the style these days or not, but, um, so I, yeah, I'm aware of it. I think for the most part, I, I, I take it in as like a little bit educational, but also like a little inspirational. Cause it's like, Oh, I, what, what choices did they make? in, in that show. And I wonder if I would have made those same choices. You know, and some of those choices are not always up to us. Like, you know, sometimes that, that's the collaborative part that's like, Oh, they really, the producers really want that. So we, you know, we'll find a way to make that work. But, um, yeah, it's an interesting thing, but I, I don't like to be, even if I never share my opinions, I never like to be critical of other people's work. Um, because it's so hard what we do. <laughs> and, and again, oftentimes it's not, it's it, because it's a collaborative process, there are parameters that are not always within a composer's control. Um, nothing bad about that, but because of that, some choices need to be made for reasons that I don't, I wouldn't know about because I wasn't in those rooms and I wasn't, I wasn't telling that story, you know? So, um, I'm definitely aware of it, but not in a critical way. <laughs> You've mentioned um, collaborating with Blake Neely on a number of projects, and as a team of collaborators ourselves, we're always yes. interested in other teams. Um, and if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, how that came to be, um, what you've learned working with him, and how you guys work together, and what that collaboration is like. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, I think that his collaboration with he, he collaborates with two other composers, including myself. So three of us total. And I would say that, to be honest, that collaboration probably just came out as a, came about as a necessity because he had a lot of work coming in. Um, and I can tell you like in general, and this is not a secret in, especially for those of us who work in the industry, in any part of the industry, nobody can do it by themselves. I mean, it's, you know, composers most of the time, nine times out of 10, maybe, I don't know, you know, are not doing everything themselves. Many of them are writing entirely by themselves and, and it depends, but if you do have a, a number of projects, it's really, it's not only helpful, it's all not, it's not only a necessity, but sometimes it's really healthy to actually have other writers to help you. So that was something that Blake was doing, you know, for a bit, having additional writers, additional help. But what's, what's really different about Blake is that he decided and, and worked for it too. He decided to, you know, elevate those people and, and, and say, and say to the world, Hey, I'm not doing this on my own. Here are some of the people that are helping me. Um, and that's not always something that, you know, composers can do. Sometimes it's, it's not, sometimes, you know, there's just other parameters on it that, that are just, you know, politics and things like that, where it's not as easy for a composer to be, open about that and transparent. And that's, and again, that's, that's just industry. That's just the way it is. There's nothing, nothing bad or good about that. Um, but Blake, you know, kind of worked for that, for that transparency. So that's, that's how it started with, I think originally with Blindspot and, and Riverdale was I did work with him from the very beginning of those shows, but more in a supportive role. And then, you know, thankfully he allowed me to like elbow my way in further and say, Hey, I want to, I want to do a little bit more. I want to, I have some ideas. I would, I've got some thematic ideas. I've got some, you know, other ideas I'd like to take, you know, take more ownership in this. And again, there was an opportunity to do that because he had a lot of work going. So I do credit him, of course, for, for, 
you know, giving that opportunity and giving that platform to myself and, and his other collaborators. Um, but it, you know, it is, it is also something where, you know, I think a composer has to be ready for it too. So I think that a number of, you know, a lot, a lot of the programs that I've been through, a lot of the schooling, you know, really helped, but also certainly learning from him and saying, okay, what, it, you know, what is he, what has he been doing and how has he been doing this thing? Um, in, you know, and I sort of, kind of sponge that up and, and, and for my own, you know, my, for my own kind of things about it as well, because I was, you know, I was, I didn't work for him forever, you know, so I did have a, a lot of my own voice. And so, so just speaking of how we actually got to work together was, um, I mentioned that he was an advisor at, um, when I was in grad school. So I met him there, but, you know, along with a number of other composers who were, you know, crazy talented. And then Sundance off, you know, offered us kind of a more like one-on-one time to sort of for him to get to know my music and to know my personality. So then it became an idea in his brain and we, we did actually try to collaborate on some other things and we actually pitched for a couple of other projects together. Um, we started writing songs together. Um, and then I became his vocalist on one of his shows and then another one of his shows. So there was that collaboration just in terms of like a musician kind of with, a composer mindset and then obviously you know getting to know someone's personality you get to know like oh can I actually work with them or is this not going to be a good fit and so luckily it was a good fit but it took time for you know it took time for the right projects to come along and present themselves and for him to say hey so and then I got the call about Supergirl he was he started the pilot he was working on the pilot Supergirl and he said hey I I've got a couple of shows happening this year, like more than two and maybe four. And, um, I really, you know, I know your writing voice and I really want you to help come on and, you know, come on the Supergirl pilot with me and help design a part of the sound of the show, which is kind of like the, the jackpot phone call. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Do people still get those phone calls? And it was like, uh, yeah, of course I will. And, um, so again, it was just, it was just to kind of help form, uh, Supergirl's sound when she wasn't Supergirl. So when she was Kara, when she was in her apartment or in the office and sort of this goofy, quirky side of her character, um, and also some of the emotional side of her as well. And so, and Blake just said, Hey, I, 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 I know some of these tracks you've done in the past and I, I really like your, your voice and really just want you to want, I think we should work together on this. And that was really it was amazing. So, uh, that same year blind spot pilot also happened. And I was like, you know, I kind of like doing this kind of music too. Can I like jump in on that? So again, when Riverdale came about, it was, it's like, I, I, I felt like I was ground up with him, but, um, only in those second seasons was it, did it make the most sense for, you know, I had taken on like much more of a collaborative role and, carrying, carrying more weight as it were. So that was how we started and that's how we continue. And now like on the case of Redline, we, we were actually asked for as a team. So that's, that's very exciting. So that, so yeah, I mean, certainly he does projects on his own and I do projects on my own, but I, I think collaborating with him is, is, uh, really important. He is, he is really good at what he does and he is really good at, especially on the superhero shows, on, on so many different genres, but because of that, I feel like I have, I have much to learn. I have learned a lot and through just, you know, things that I've picked up over the years from other working with other people and other projects. And then what he brings to the table, it's, you know, I feel pretty fortunate. I feel like I'm forming 
the right, you know, the right sound for myself and the right, um, what do you call it? Like not work ethics, but like, you know, just the right, the right method, method of operation. How about that? Um, what has been the most memorable project you've worked on so far and what is your dream project to work on? I guess it's kind of like choosing like your, I don't have kids, but maybe pets, like, right, like choosing your favorite, like you can't possibly choose a favorite pet. So, but I, I will say that, I will say that I think my favorite projects and the most memorable ones are the ones that I've really learned something good about myself. And I don't, and I, I mean this, like not the ones that really kind of broke me <laughs> or maybe I got broken. I wouldn't say that the project broke me, but it's like, there, there have been some, some ones in the past that, you know, maybe even like student films. I mean, just really early, early on films where I kind of walked away, probably being a little hard on myself, but walked away feeling like I, I don't think that happened the right way, <laughs> you know? Um, but, but I think those, they're all like natural, like that's like what's supposed to happen. So I feel like, I feel like the ones that are most memorable are the ones that I'm like, wow, I think, I think I nailed that. Not necessarily like, I love all the music that I did for it, but more like I, I, I learned this thing. Like I did that part right. Or like, you know, um, like I would say on Nancy Drew, I think I, you know, I loved the collaborative process with, with the, um, the director Kat Shea and with Ellen Generous's um, producing company. It's like with Jeff Kleeman. And it's like, I think those are relationships that I'm like, Oh, I, I really, I really benefit from that. Like for just learning experiences for myself. Um, I think that's a project I also really love too, because it, that was like some of the hardest music <laughs> that I've ever written. And I didn't, I didn't mean to write difficult music for me, but as a composer, I like, I definitely found a new room in there. <laughs> like there was definitely a new like corner of something that I, I think needs to be developed more. I mean, like, in a good, like meaning I discovered it and I'm like, Oh, we, we got to go searching in that, in like in that playground even more. So again, I, it's a, any project that I think really expands me as a composer and as and as a professional because this isn't just about writing music <laughs> it's about a lot of other of the industry and business side of, the, of, the, of stuff but I I mean this is not it's not just a politically correct thing to say but it's really true that the shows all the shows that I that I've been working on the ones that, that I was just support on and then these ones that that I, I have you know I feel I feel uh, really connected to like Riverdale and Blindspot and, and the red line and, um, any future ones coming up. It's like those ones, I just, I'm always learning something new and amazing because the stories are always different and the people that we're getting to work with are always different. So the ones that I really walk away feeling like I discovered something good and useful and something that I didn't know was there. Um, and then dream projects. Yeah. I'm really into it. This change, this answer changes every, every time I try to answer it. Cause I feel like I'm, uh, I, I don't know. I just, I feel like I watch something and I'm like, Oh, I want to do that. Like, Oh, you know, like I'm like John wick is coming out and I'm so excited for the third one. Like I'm seeing it in the IMAX theater tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the score is Tyler Bates. So if that's you, Tyler, shout out to you. But, um, his score, his score is amazing. So, but like, I'll see a movie like John wick or like or something like that. That just is like, I, I love those kinds of like action movies where it's like, you know, I don't know, it's like assassin movies. I love those types of ones, especially when they're girls. Um, I just watched absentia on 
Amazon Prime. And then the episodic version of, of Hannah or Hannah, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And I just love those kinds of stories where it's like girl sleeper cell, you know, secret identity, girl superheroes. And I just, I, those are, those just seem so fun to me. And I'm just like, I want to work on those. I just want to work on like, and not just like badass women, but just like stories of, of like brooding heroes, I think (laughs) are like, I don't know, kind of dream projects for me. That and period films, completely, like completely different, like very, very different, but like, oh, I just, like, I long to do a film with Kira Knightley in it because doing what she does so well, which is like a period film, like, you know, just in her, all of her grace and style, you know? So I feel like that's bringing back like classical piano stuff. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Right. Like Joe Wright films. Oh, I'd kill to work with Joe Wright, but he, <laughs> but he, look, I love Joe Wright films because, well, one, he's just an amazing director and I love those films, but he also works with the same composer much of the time, Dario Marinelli, who I'm probably butchering his name, but an Italian composer that is just, his music is stunning, probably my favorite composer right now. So I would never want, I would never assume that I could ever even get between the two of them. And I never want to because of the films that they do together are just stunning, but that would be like my dream (laughs) to like work with him. Anyway. Love that. Yeah. Um, well, we end every interview with our rapid response segment, three, two, one, action. Yes. Yay. I'm scared. It's the pressure. <laughs> um, so we'll start with three, your favorite or most influential film. Well, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves was the one that turned me on to the whole career, but I can't say that I want to watch the film right now. So I would say uh, the 2005 version, Joe Wright's version of Pride and Prejudice, a film just all around a stunning work of perfection from the writing, the editing, the, well, obviously the writing, but like, you know, the editing, the, the, the visuals and the score is amazing. So yes, that's my, probably my most influential. Two, dream person you want to work yes. with. I already said it. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I say Joe Wright, but at the same time, it's like, he is so paired up with, again, one of my favorite composers that it's like, uh, I'll just sit back and watch the magic and just, and yes, but one best advice you've ever received, particularly about film composing and this industry was advice that I sought that I, I was before I even came out here to school and someone said, if you can imagine doing, if you can imagine being happy doing anything else then go do it, <laughs> which is kind of like, which is kind of, if you think about it, like, like, kind of a, a sort of a negative way to thing to look at it. But I thought about that and I was like, could I honestly be fulfilled doing anything else? And I honestly believe no. I said, and I said, like, if there's a chance for happiness for me, like it's going to be pursuing this, which really makes it about the journey. And that's in my whole, like soaking that, that piece of advice in, I realized, oh, it, this has to be about the journey. So it's like, even if I'm scoring something that is a really good film, or maybe it's not a really great film, but even if no one ever sees it, it's like, did I learn? Did I, did I, am I proud of the score? You know, then that makes it a success for me, you know? And again, not everything we do is going to be well received. Maybe not everything we do is even going to be like 
good, you know, like sometimes, I mean, I, I have written some really, some, some rubbish for sure, but, but it's like, did I learn, like, did I, you know, and again, that's what it has to be about the journey. We can't make winning awards, our goals. We can't, we don't have any control over that. We can't make quote unquote being a success. It's like, those are, those have to be our own personal definitions. So in marinating over, like, if you can be happy doing anything else, then go do it. That's what that says to me. It's like, you better make this about your journey because there's just no promises. And so if you can be happy pursuing it in the, just the pursuit, then do it. And if you can be, if you can be happy doing some pursuing something else, go do that. Cause then this will, yeah, it'll be difficult if you, if you can't be happy loving the journey. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. And action. What are you most looking forward to right now? I mean, honestly, it kind of goes back to like, I'm, I'm looking forward to filling my well. I'm looking forward to just having just a little bit of like silence and a little bit of seclusion. (laughs) Um, because there are some really fun things coming up in next season and in the fall for me and Blake and, um, and myself personally. And, and so I just, I'm really looking forward to those. So I'm actually looking forward to, uh, tapping into pinpointing, finding, honing in on some creative inspiration, which means some quiet time (laughs) and then, and then just kicking into high gear and seeing hopefully what I can come up with or what I can come up with. And hopefully it's good. (laughs) Hopefully fans, hopefully fans love it. (laughs) And where can people follow you? Are you on social media? I'm on, I do. I'm very, I'm very poor self promoter, but, um, Maybe fans can help me. Uh, <laughs> Facebook, I think it's just share, just Sherry Chung. Um, Twitter is stupid kazoo with yeah. three O's, um, <laughs> and Instagram is Sherry Chung. Great, Damn. awesome! Thanks so much for chatting hey, with us. This thank great. you guys. This is really cool. Thank great you. questions. <laughs> You can find us at afemalelens.com and at afemalelens on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at afemalelens at gmail.com. And you can download the show anywhere you listen to podcasts and on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. Our theme song was composed by Jesse Nelson. Our logos were created by Megan Cafferty. Elise Welch is our associate producer. And A Female Lens was created by Jennifer Zollett and Larkin Bell. 